Hi, I'm Mike Harris, and this is Backstage with the Bardavon. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavon 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Since 1994, Chris Silva has been at the helm of the Bardavon 1869 Opera House. Chris arrived at the Bardavon via Hollywood and Broadway, having served in the capacity of theater manager and the producer and director of theater and film. Most recently, Chris was instrumental in affiliating the Ulster Performing Arts Center in Kingston, New York, with the Bardavon and oversaw its $10 million restoration that was completed in late 2017. Additionally, the Bardavon opened the Hutton Brickyards, also in Kingston, which presented two sold-out Bob Dylan shows in June 2017. What better way to begin our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast than with Chris Silva? Chris, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. So, Chris, let's uh, start with uh, talking a little bit about you. I mean, uh, we, we are aware that uh, you grew up in San Francisco in the uh, 60s, mm-hmm. uh, the summer of love. Uh, That's right, baby. That, that, must have been, that must have been pretty boring. Huh? You, yeah. <laughs> no, it was fine. It was a great time to grow up, actually. A great time to be a teenager and then a 20-year-old um, and yeah, and I and I actually the theater. Uh, you know, I started my first theater right out of college, San Francisco State, in a commune on Pine Street in San Francisco, and it was called the Alternative Futures Commune, which is a total '60s name. But little did I know that that was the beginning of sort of an alternative future for me. That you know, I I didn't know I would be able to stick with the theater my whole life, but. Um, but I was able to. And, uh, yeah, so those were heady days. I mean, you know, the 70s, early 70s in San Francisco, nobody really wanted to be there. You know, it was like being in New York City in the 70s. You know, everybody said, the hell with this place, get out of here. And so uh, it allowed uh, you to do whatever you wanted. I mean, it was a very open world back then. And the commune, you know, we weren't able to... Um, we didn't get very far. The fire department closed us down really pretty quickly. And so I called the, uh, it was owned by the Methodist Church, so I called the pastor who was the landlord, and he was the theater guy, and he said, well, do do your show for me. So we did, like an audience of one, and he said, yeah, you guys are good. Why don't you, I have a church basement on 16th and Market Street. So this was a theater group that you put together in college and 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 did all the uh, production for and everything i yeah we produced directed did everything ourselves and um and built a stage and you know we had it all ready to go and then we started promoting it in in the neighborhood in san francisco and the fire department found out about it and said you have no permits you've got burnable stuff what get out of here so uh, in fact i think he went to the fire department with us and uh he was an extremely supportive guy in fact he ended up marrying me and my first wife and i were married by him like this is in the 70s um Anyway, uh, that's a different story altogether. But uh, anyway, he invited us to his church basement, and it was a gymnasium-sized space that we had to share with, like, a day uh, daycare center that was only there in the mornings. And, you know, we moved the play things out of the way and did our thing. And then they eventually left, and we, we did a lot of amazing things in that space. Uh, again, like I say, you could do almost anything, and we did, and it was a very portable space. It was like a huge black box. So how long was how long was this period of time? I was there about seven years oh. uh, till uh, you know it was a burnout, of course, because uh-huh. you're doing. Uh, it was literally 
it was the best learning ground because I was, you know, producing, directing, acting sometimes. Uh, you know, I had to put, you know, I sold the tickets. The box office number was my home. You know, it was sort of everything. And I didn't really know anything. So, you know, it was fine to do everything. And so I learned a lot. And, and that, was, uh, that was a real training ground. And then my ex-wife, she wasn't even my wife yet. She was a singer. Um, she got a gig... Uh, with a road band called the New Deal Rhythm Band um, out of Seattle. In fact, this is a sort of interesting side story. She replaced um, their lead singer who got a job singing with the Manhattan Transfer. Wow. And she's been with the Manhattan Transfer ever since that time in the 70s. And when we had Manhattan Transfer here, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, uh, I told her, I said, hey, you know who I am? You know who you are? And she was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And, uh, and she knew Mary, uh, too. And uh, anyway. So that troupe went on uh, while you were in uh, college. And the theater? Yeah. The theater, the theater group. Yeah, the we whole, started in college. Time. Yeah. When I graduated, so, we got to commune and, yeah. you know. And then, and, then, I, and then I got to the church. And, right. Yeah. And then, and then when she got this gig in the late 70s uh, to go on the road, I couldn't deal with her being gone. So I finagled myself a job being a road manager. And we were just talking about this earlier, and we went on. I went on tour with this band, took a leave of absence from the theater, and went on tour. This was like 78, 79. And, um, and man, that was just an awful job of being in Reno and Tahoe and playing lounges and, you know, not glamorous. And if you want to be an alcoholic, that's the job to have, you know? <laughs> and because uh, it was just, you know, everything was free to the band and everything. So it was just bad. And uh, I got a visit we we were visited by an old friend of ours from San Francisco who's actually a New Yorker, Richard Alexander. And he had moved back to the city, to New York City, and um, it was a good visit. And he said, you know, look, when you're ever in New York, come come see me. I, you know, you can sleep on my couch. And so uh, I, I decided shortly after he left, I went, you know, this isn't for me. I should go to New York and visit Dick and then see what happens. So anyway, I, I, long story short, I went, I left the band. Uh, it was the tour was almost over. Um, Mary, Did you go back to the troupe? Uh, back no, to I went directly to New York City. Directly to New York, City. and um, and I instantly, when I got to New York, you know, it took me a week to realize, oh, duh, this is where I need to be if I'm serious about being in the theater. I can be a big fish in the San Francisco pond, or I can try and make it in New York. And so that's what I did. And I called San Francisco and I said, look, I'm not coming back. I'm going to stay in New York. Rented an apartment almost immediately. And um, my first job was at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel where I was a busboy, which was actually an amazing experience because anybody that was anybody came went to the Sherry Netherlands at eight. So, you know, I met a lot of celebs there. Everybody in theater, met. Everybody in theater was in hospitality at exactly. some point. <laughs> but that was, you know, my only non-theater job the whole time I lived in, this, in New York City. I got that gig and then I started working for Joe Papp um, at the Public Theater. I, you know, I had gotten to know Sam Shepard, uh, the writer in San Francisco, because he lived there. And I met him through his wife, originally, actually, his first wife. And um, anyway, so we had a relationship. And his play, Curse of the Starving Class, was going to be done at the Public Theater. And I knew the director, so I finagled myself an assistant directing job. And um, and I kept working at the at the Public for a long time as an assistant director, a director. And then I was also a reader 
uh, which meant I just read a lot of scripts and went to see a lot of off-off-Broadway theater and got paid for it. And you didn't get paid a lot, but this is the, you know, the late 70s, early 80s in New York. Everything was cheap, period. You know, I had a, I remember I had a $300 sublet on Riverside Drive and 96, one bedroom. I could have bought it for $20,000, but of course I didn't have $2,000, much less twenty. But that was that, again, a, a great time to be in New York City. I worked at La Mama a lot and Theater for New City. And, you know, I just hustled all the time and, and met a lot of people. And I remember Joe Papp gave me a lot of good advice in terms of, you know, being a producer, which is basically produce something. Right. <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you be a producer. Huh. And... Um, you know, New York was so, great. So talk a little bit about your experience with Sam Shepard. You uh, did uh, Curse of the yeah, Starving Yeah, did Curse Class, of the Starving Class. Fool I did uh, Fool for Love. Yeah, Fool for Love was really fun. That was, uh, that was a transfer. He, Sam directed it originally in San Francisco at the Magic Theater. He was still living out there. And, you know, he never, he didn't travel. You know, he was not a guy that, he never got on airplanes, which is kind of ironic because he was like played, what's his name in the right stuff, uh, you know, the pilot but he was not he feared flying so he drove everywhere so anyway he he the show moved to new york but he didn't want to come out with it so um i knew one of the actors and and she recommended me and i ended up getting the gig and i took over the production in new york city and it played at circle rep and then it moved to the douglas fairbanks but it was a great show ed harris was in it he played the lead, Kathy Baker, who's just was became a good friend. She's a terrific person, an actor. Uh, they were the leads, and um, but the funniest story about that show was the understudy that I cast was Bruce Willis. You and, cast Bruce Willis, yeah, and because we had to always audition people because Ed Ed left pretty early in the production. He got replaced by Will Patton, who's another great actor. But Bruce auditioned, and we cast him. And so he was the understudy. <laughs> and he was a bartender at that, that time. It was, you know, before anything happened for him. And this is, this is a great showbiz story because he, um, when Will was going to leave the show, um, we kept auditioning actors, actor, after, actor, after, actor. And the producers kept saying, no, I need, we need a star. We need a name. We need a star. We need a name. And we're like, well, and then Bruce ended up going on with no understudy because Will had left the show and they hadn't cast anybody. So he was saving the show week after week. He was doing eight shows a week. So finally I said, you know, Will's, uh, Bruce is doing a great job. Why don't we just give him the job? No, we need a star. So I got fed up. This was like two years into working for that show. And Bruce got fed up. And we both quit at the same time. Bruce went out, he got an audition in L.A. for um, Moonlighting. Moonlighting, sure. Got that job, and the, the rest, rest is history. history yeah. Now, had they listened to me <laughs> and cast Bruce as the, he probably, his career would have been shot. Right. You know, he probably wouldn't have had that break. I mean, it's just so weird. So you, you know? went from there into the uh, managing the uh, Chelsea Theater? Well, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, the Chelsea Theater, we, I was uh, producing, um, co-producing a show by a uh, play by Dario Fo, who's a great Nobel Prize winning uh, Italian playwright, anarchist, really. He also had a play on Broadway called Accidental Death of an Anarchist. He's a wild, he was a wild man. In fact, he and his wife had a very popular show in Italy for years that was compared to I Love Lucy. It was kind of a similar kind of wackiness, except very political. This play was called We Won't Pay, We Won't Pay, Non Se Paga, Non Se Paga. And, um, it was a very farcical retelling of a true story of a housewife's revolt in Italy over high prices. Anyway, we, we produced this show at the Chelsea, 
and the Chelsea Theater. And again, this is, you know, the way things happen sometimes. They were in debt. They'd been around for 30 years or something. They were in debt. They couldn't pay their, pay their Con Ed bill, okay, which was like five grand. And so they came to us and said, if you pay the $5,000 Con Ed bill, we'll turn over the lease to you. And it was a two theater. It was like two theaters in a cabaret space. We looked at them and went, okay, we'll do that. And we ended up taking over the theater. And, and, and then the lease, which was great. They disappeared. And we ran that theater for years. Um, and, you know, this is the other weird story about that. The owner of that theater and most of the block was Bob Durst. Wow. Who you may remember, he was featured in the HBO yeah. documentary, The Jinx. He had... His wife had just disappeared when we were there, and we were very, oh, Bob, it's so sad about your wife, because we didn't, you know, we didn't know he was crazy, Oops. you know, and um, he, he seemed fairly sane to us, and, um, but anyway, that's just a weird, you know, New York is full of those kind of stories. So you, you, you did that for a certain amount of time. Yeah, for years, for and several you, years. And then did you jump from there to come to the Bardavon? Oh, no, no, no? Uh, we... Uh, I just did a lot of shows. Uh, uh, I produced a lot of theater. Um, I worked on another play of Sam's um, called A Lie of the Mind, which had the most amazing cast. It included uh, Geraldine Page, um, Aidan Quinn, Harvey Keitel, um, um, uh, Amanda Plummer, mm -hmm. Will Patton was in it. I mean, it was just a great cast. That was really fun. And I took over that show for Sam as well. So he, you were doing simultaneously out. with the... Uh, I did. I usually had like two or three shows at, running at the same time. Because uh -huh. that's, you know, you got to make a living. Right. So, And I never said no to any... If it was an opportunity, I would mm -hmm. say, okay, yeah. I can do that. Um, and so I learned a lot. So you're st you're still living in New York, still in, in the city. that uh, small apartment I'd, I'd that you rented. To Brooklyn. Oh, you moved to Brooklyn. Yeah, because oh, you I were an early afford, adopter then. Yeah, huh? I couldn't <laughs> afford Manhattan. Well, the weird thing is, I lived in Dumbo, which was now is totally happening scene. Right. Then you literally ran from the subway stop to yeah. your apartment. Yeah. I had two different girlfriends that were mugged on the way to my house. I mean, it was not healthy. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I moved. Uh, then I met Casey. What happened was I was. Uh, I think this was this was during Lie of the Mind. I can't even remember. I think I was still at the West Side, and I met my current wife of the last 31 years, Casey Curdy, who's a writer, and um, and I started developing her work, sort of independently of my jobs. And um, I ended up in New York because I produced and directed a play of hers called Three Ways Home, at the at um, uh, the. Um, uh, that theater is right across from the public, uh, where Blue Man Group has been running. We were the last show in that theater before Blue Man uh -huh. opened, and it's been running there for 30 right. years or right. something ever yeah. since. Um, theater 4, is that what it was called? I can't remember. Anyway, um, so yeah, that show got bought by the movies. Uh, Columbia Pictures uh, gave us a big bag of money. Alan Pakula was the producer, the great director and producer of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and All the Presidents of Man and uh, Sophie's Choice. And just, you know, he was just a great director. And so we got this bag of money. Our son was just about two. And we were thinking, hmm. We got to start thinking about school, and we got this bag of money, and it's going to disappear in New York. And Casey went to SUNY New Paltz, so we used to go. We used oh, to take the weekends. Yeah. yeah, we used to do weekends in in the Hudson Valley in uh, New Paltz, actually, and stayed with some friends. So we we loved being up here, and so we thought, well, why don't we take this money someplace where it might last a little while? And because um, you never have money, 
you know, in the theater. So now we finally had a little bit. So we moved up here, moved to Stone Ridge. Uh, I guess that was 89 or so, something like that. 90, and then I just freelanced, um, and, and and it helped that Casey had this writing gig, you know, making the play into a screen screenplay with Alan. That lasted about two years. Then the studio went into Turner, into it got sold, and the film guy went to turn around like so many films. So do. you were commuting back and forth to New York to do yeah, the shows. Yeah, New York, L.A. Yeah. We did the show in L.A. We did the show in a lot of different places. Um, uh, and I went to it was my first time in Cuba. I went to Cuba on a, for a festival in eighty. Four, and actually, it was before I left New York, and then um, and Berlin. I mean, I just we did a lot of traveling because we had to go where the work was, you know. And I and I, I and I soon realized that not being in New York City was, you know, um, being a disconnect. You know, I was disconnected from from the business. But uh, but anyway, so uh, the freelance life was not fun. But uh, anyway, I, I was uh, I heard about. Um, here's the weird story about the Bardavon. I can jump to the Bardavon. I heard about a job opening at UPAC in Kingston. Um, they were looking for an executive director. So, and I went, oh, that's 15 minutes from my house. That's great. So I, um, looked, uh, I, I went to, uh, I applied for the job at UPAC. This is in 93, I guess, or 94. And, um, uh, and then I went to New York to Lincoln Center to research the history of the theater. So I was prepared, you know, for the interview and knew what their story was. And when I looked into the uh, TDF newsletter, I saw that the Bardavon was looking for the exactly the same position, which was so weird at the same time. So I said, oh, I'll apply there too. What the heck? I'd only been here once. Um, I saw David Byrne play in his, uh, some gigantic um, ensemble. I can't remember what it was. And I was in the balcony. I remember the whole balcony was rocking. <laughs> um, and that was the only time I'd been in the place. But... Um, but I, I knew it was a beautiful place. So anyway, so I applied for both jobs. And I knew a bunch of people in Ulster County, uh, the, the Davenport family, which were big with the theater and at UPAC, et cetera. So I really politicked for the job. And this is the difference between, at that time, between UPAC and, Kings, and, and Kingston and, and the Bardavon. I pushed really hard in Kingston, and I kept calling them and saying, you know, I, I've... So, and meanwhile, the Bardavon called me right up. They interviewed me once. I called UPAC and said, hey, I've had an interview. It went really well. Are you guys going to be? Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to you. I got a second interview here. I was feeling good about it. Called UPAC because it was like, you know, so close to my house. Uh, yes, no, we have a lot of uh, applicants. You know, we'll get to you. So Bardavon, third interview, they, they're going to hire. They hire me. Sure. And, and six months, I mean, um, it took them six months at UPAC to hire the guy they hired ultimately. And then 12 years later, I took over UPAC, so it, it took 12 years, but it all Secutus worked out. Circuitous route, but it worked out. It worked out fine, and it could have been better timing because back then, the building, UPAC, was in really bad shape. I mean, it was in bad shape when we took it over, but then every single seat was gaffer taped together. The paint job in the lobby was just like different multicolored rainbow, like running paint, and they just keep going. I mean, it was a mess, and... Um, but yeah, so anyway, so you took over the Bardavon in, uh, in 94. 19, 90, 1994. And so talk about uh, how the, what, what was the Bard what was the state of the Bardavon at that time? Well, I didn't nobody told me this when they were hiring me. They, I think they said, uh, yeah, there's some it's got some physical problems. I'm like, oh, it's 1869, how could it not? But um I had no idea. And 
until I got the job, and then I read the engineering report for the stage house, uh, and I crawled up to the top, 80 feet up, to the to see the main beam. The main beam was put in by James Collingwood, sure. who was a lumber merchant who built this place. So it was a piece of James Collingwood wood with his name carved in it, hollow. You knock on it, it was hollow. It was like a big, you know, like one by one, but, you know, I went, oh, this is not good. And then the engineer's report said... Um, that it was the sort of Damocles, uh, house of cards, and uh, there was fear of imminent collapse. That was that was like first month on the job. <laughs> so I went, okay, we got to find money and do this job fast. And you know, it was supposed to be a three hundred thousand dollar job, ended up being a six hundred thousand dollar job. And again, that was when there was some money out there. This is the nineties. You know, Clinton was the president, et cetera. So uh, money was flowing, so it was a little easier. But that was the beginning of a long, long period of renovation. So just for reference, if you drive up to the back of the Bardavan yeah. and you see the steel yeah. uh, structure that's out there, yeah. that's the steel structure that replaced the hollow beam that it's you just, just part discussed. Of it. That's just, actually just, part, just of it. part of it. There's also big steel beams that literally oh, they replaced, replaced it. The, oh, yeah. yeah. And then later we had to do uh, vertical beams on all, all four because the grid was also collapsing. I mean, the whole place was a disaster. The ceiling was just coming away from sure. its, you know, this is not the original ceiling. This is a 1928 ceiling. Above it is an 1869 ceiling and dome. And it was all coming, you know, it's been up there since 1928. It's, it was all coming undone. So at one point in the renovation, this entire place was scaffolded and we had to, you know, repair. I mean, it was a lot, a lot of work, HVAC, electrical, you name it. But that's done, and you know it's just so weird that we. So were you up, learning on the job as yeah. you were as you were doing this? Uh, yeah, I mean, done. compared to let's say go, you know go back to your original troupe out in San Francisco yeah. or your your experience at the Chelsea Theater. I mean, were there you know budgets involved and all the programming and all the staff? And all that was all that I was used to. What I had never really done was renovation work. You know, I'd never done had to deal with bid documents and. Um, and, and state grants and the restrictions that are placed on them or federal grants or, or dealing with just huge renovations where, you know, especially in old buildings like this where, you know, you pull a brick out and you're like, oh, God, I didn't know that was there. Oh, that's another $100,000. And that was sort of a constant. And, and what we did here for, I don't know, 15 years was we'd close every summer like June, July, August, and most of September, and bite off some job, a half a million dollar job or a million dollar job. Like when we did the marquee renovation, this is a classic story. Um, that marquee, the old 40s marquee that pe people that have been around a while re may remember, that was literally falling off the building. It was, pull it was gonna fall. And so we had to replace it. So we, the replica of the 20s marquee is what we put up there. Little did we know until we got into it that, um, that the whole face of this building, of the, you know, Bardavon building was falling off and into, onto Market Street. And the entire building is full of lawyers. <laughs> so, so we had to go. Luckily, we had a good relationship. It was Jack Garland and, and Mike now. And, you know, it was all people we knew and were friendly with. But we had to go into their offices and go, okay, uh, we're going to have to put a steel beam through your office to hold you. And they helped. I mean, financially, they helped because it was their building. Sure. We just owned the theater part. They owned the building. And they were happy to hear that, 
you know, that we had discovered that the face of their building was falling So off. that's one of the good things about the Bardavon. It has always had a great board of directors right. since you've been here and even before. Yeah, absolutely. And also had uh, great support from the community. Can totally. you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, and that's the, the kind of the saving grace of, the, of, of getting here in 94 and realizing all these issues. The same when we took over the orchestra, when the orchestra made a lot of bad management decisions in the late 90s and forced themselves into bankruptcy, we got... You know, besides the Dyson Foundation and the Noon Trust and, and individuals and Steve Salan when he was senator and, uh, and just a lot of people rally around this place because it means so much to people. You know, it's been here so long and it's, uh, and it's never closed. And, you know, just the fact that it was saved from demolition by the community, by, by people like the Dunwells who put their house up, uh, mortgaged their house to buy the place and save it. I mean, that's, that's a significant... That's a significant thing. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a huge benefit. Also, I, what I've really noticed is the wealth difference, now that I'm in, Dutch, in Ulster County with a theater as well, in Dutchess and Ulster is, is significant. It's changing, I think, in Ulster County, but, um, you know, right now it is. But, um, but for a long time, it was just very hard to find funds in Ulster County. It's much easier to find them in Dutchess. And I think there's a, there's a culture of giving in Dutchess that runs very deep and has been around for a very long time and, you know, has not just for the Bardavon, but for all kinds of different important things. So, um, yeah, yeah, I couldn't, you know, if we had to bend on just individuals, uh, it never, I don't think we ever would have gotten the work done. It's right. just too big, you know. So we touched on the fact that uh, James Collings, Collingsworth is uh, the fellow who built the, Collingwood, built the, yeah. Collingwood, yeah. built the Bardavon. And then um, there's so, you, you, there was a um, uh, an organ here that yeah, was still is. Yeah. it was taken out yep. and it was stored in somebody's barn yeah. or a warehouse <laughs> exactly. or something and then and then brought back it disappeared in the '60s. Do you know the story about Ed Woods? Ed Wood? Oh, well, yeah. Ed Wood, the, the fa infamous filmmaker, was an usher here and um, and worked here for a number of years and you know kind of famously and uh, yeah and then he went on to fame, if not fortune, by making what are called the worst movies ever made, you know, <laughs> or a few of the worst movies ever made. And then he kind of disappeared into obscurity. But uh, yeah, there's actually a movement to uh, build a statue and put it across the street. Um, it hasn't caught fire yet, but uh, yeah, he's kind of a famous character. Hmm. But so many famous people. I mean, Mark Twain played here the very first year the theater was open. Well, let's get to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a whole list. I mean, if you go back all the way to the beginning, you yeah. got Ethel and John Barrymore. Right. You got Wild Bill Cody. Yeah. You got Will Rogers, Mark Twain, yeah. the Roosevelts, both uh, Franklin and Teddy. Right. You, you, you've got the uh, New York Philharmonic has been here, the right. New York Symphony Orchestra, yeah. the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Milton Berle, Sammy Kay, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> and and if you bring it up to the present, you got Dave Brubeck, Marvin Hamlish, Barry Short, Mary Tyler Moore, Buddy Guy, uh, Temptations, Henny Youngman. I mean, the yeah, list yeah. goes on and on. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of. So let's talk a little bit about backstage now. Yeah, okay. and some of the stories that that most people wouldn't hear about because right. they're not the they, the people they come to the Bardavon. Right. They, sit down in their seat, the curtain opens, the show goes on, right. they enjoy the show, they right. leave the show, everything looks great. Yeah. But backstage, Chris? Well, there's kind of a lot of stories. Um, I mean, every show has some kind of story, but um, ones I remember, uh, 
you know, that pop up are, are really because the artists were kind of amazing individuals, so that they, so it was always kind of an amazing story. Like Dave Brubeck is a good example. I mean, he was one of the first shows I booked when I came here in the '94, and I think we booked him at least three times after that, or twice at least. And um, and he was, and, and we opened the show. We decided we knew his son, uh, his sons Danny and Chris also lived around here. So we opened the show with Danny and Chris and their band. Opened the show. Dave sat in with them, which was great. And then Dave's band, which the you know the Dave Brubeck Quartet, opened uh, closed the show. And then Danny and Chris sat in with them. And one of the most fun parts of that concert was uh, a. a a drum off that they had. Danny Brubeck had, I don't know, 15 drums and cymbals and you know, every contraption you could have. Dave's guy, who I can't remember his name, he had three drums, a hi-hat and two cymbals. And he killed him. He just totally, you know, with his little teeny drum set, there was no comparison. I mean, it was like this old vet killing this young kid. It was great. And then Dave said, you know, to us afterwards, this concert will keep us for a long time to come because the relationship between his guys and the audience is so incredibly intimate and so warm. The art artists really feel what's going on from the audience's standpoint because it's so close. It's so incredibly intimate. So he was, he was very high on it, which made us all feel really good. Um, Certainly, Tony Bennett um, was a highlight. It was, I don't know, 10 years ago or something that we had Tony when he was only 85 or something. <laughs> <laughs> now he's still out there at 90 something. But his sound check is one of the most classic events. His band, his trio was here. They were, they were you know, warming up. And we were waiting. Me and Isla were waiting at the door for him uh, on the stage door. And he comes in looking unbelievably sharp, you know, I think he had a cashmere coat on or something, it was just beautiful, and he was like really friendly, and hi, everybody, and uh, and he walked in the stage, and said, hey, uh, it looks great, uh, ready, one, two, three, <laughs> I've been here before, great, sounds great, out the door, five notes. There's a professional, that's, exactly that's a professional he, for you. That's yeah. what he sang, I've been here before, right. bow, and he did sound great, and he left, you guys were probably at the show, and he left, and it was, he was yeah. right. You know, unlike, say, Carol Channing, you know, the complete opposite. She did a three-hour sound check with full orchestra. And she, she took me, uh, when she was done, uh, when she was done the sound check, she almost went into overtime with the orchestra. I was like, you're doing a 90-minute show. you got to do a three-hour sound check, really? And um, her husband, who was like 100, came up to get me. He goes, young man, come with me. So I went downstairs, and Carol... <laughs> <laughs> and she was great. I mean, she was the nothing negative to say about her. She was wonderful. She was laying on the floor of the dressing room covered in like a, um, what is it when you bury somebody? You put them in a, like a, uh, anyway. She was all wrapped up with a big smudge of makeup on her nose, <laughs> laying on the ground with her feet up on a chair. So I'm standing over her with a full-length mirror. I'm looking at myself, looking at her and going, this is too funny. I'm gonna, this is going to be a story. And she goes, darling, you know, uh, with her voice. She goes, you know, I don't think there's enough light on me. I said, well, we've got about 100 instruments and there's no gel as in your request. That's true, but are there enough spotlights? I said, yeah, we've got two spotlights on you. Goes, and she goes, well, you know, I'm like a delicate flower. If I don't get enough sunlight, I wilt. I said, believe me, Carol, you're getting enough sunlight. And she was, you're a lovely boy. Thank you. And Dismissed me, and then her wardrobe dude, who'd been with him with her for a long time, said, <laughs> "She always does that." 
Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. And she came out and killed. Everything. So are there any stories like that where uh, an artist is backstage, downstage, and has done the sound check and come come to you and say, it's, hey, you know, I think you need to get one more light, and you had to scramble to do that? Um, it's rare. I mean, you know, we have to really, really be prepared when they get here. Obviously, they have to. everything has to be perfect. Um I do remember um, Ian Anderson, uh, Jethro Tull. Sure. When he was here, he was doing a show. Actually, we, we did it. We, it was a co-pro with PDH, and it was called uh, Rubbing Elbows with Ian Anderson. And it was, a, it was a talk and sing show where he had a couple of disc jockeys from the station on stage on a couch with him, and then he would talk, and then he would perform. And he did a very long sound check and rehearsal, and... We were getting close to opening the doors for the audience, and he said, I'm just not ready yet. I've got to rehearse with these guys. So he kept the audience waiting a full hour, you know, into the showtime, and they didn't care because everybody was out in the lobby partying because he was such a perfectionist. You know, the other story, I don't know if you guys were here, was John Legend. When we had John Legend here for the gala, he was a full hour late on the showtime, not just from the sound check, but and apparently he said to me when he, he said, "I knew when we crossed the Tappan Zee Bridge twice, we were something was wrong." I said, "Yeah, exactly." And um, but so that was that was weird. But okay, so the, we've all heard about uh, artist writers. You know, yeah. they uh, they make demands uh, on uh, on yeah. the yeah. No whoever the promoter M&Ms is and, and all that stuff. Any yeah. any uh, interesting well, stories in that regard? Well, there is a funny story about Aretha. Um, and I think I can tell the story. Uh, her rider, uh, as do a lot of riders, had alcohol in it, and um, you know, for the band or whomever. And um, she, and she's one of the few artists that actually personally initials her contracts. She, she apparently reads them. And again, this is kind of old school, you know, uh, that you actually pay attention to that stuff. And she crossed out all references to alcohol in the program and then wrote a note on it that said basically, under no circumstances should there be any alcohol backstage, especially around the musicians. Love, Aretha, happy face. <laughs> and it was like, I'm like, I'm saving that page. <laughs> that is just too funny. But, you know, she's one of those artists that, you know, she's been, I'm sure, mistreated and ripped off in her life, and so she's very careful about everything. And so what happens when you have big shows? I mean, let's use the Hudson Valley Philharmonic as a, call that a big show, yeah. I mean, stage-wise. What happens in that in, in those situations? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we use every inch of the space. I mean, with the orchestra, it's, you know, it's very s- structured. I mean, the, the violins have to be in one place, the cellos in another, et cetera. So, you know, we don't really have a lot of leeway, we just sort of fold into the wings and, and do our best. With the, One of the biggest shows we ever had, though, was besides Santana, which was a huge show for this stage, was Diana Ross. Hmm. She came, and the, when they walked into the theater, they went, uh-oh, because, you know, because she puts on, you know, she has a big production, and they said, well, and I said, what do you mean, uh-oh? And they said, well, luckily, we have an A stage, a B stage, and a C stage. You're getting C. <laughs> I said, because it doesn't fit. She goes, exactly. You know, because she had every, after every song, she had a costume change, and she had some grand entrance, and then another costume change. So it was, it was you know, it was shoehorned in here, for sure. Um, and some shows are like that. Some shows, you, you can, there's no way to go backstage. There's just a little bit, little tunnel to get in and off, and, you know, they squeeze it in. But, you know, artists are used to that. It's rare that we don't get a show because we're small, because the stage is small. But Santana was a, Santana was a big show. It was a big show physically, physically yeah. but it was a big show monetarily, and it was also a, a gala. Yeah, yeah. Did it all work out? Yeah, well, yeah, big time. 
Yeah, that show, that was one of the biggest selling shows. We, I mean, that sold out so fast to sponsors, and then we, we didn't really have that much left to go on sale with, but it went instantly. You know, almost as big as the um, Dylan show we did last summer, the two Dylan shows we did in Kingston last summer, um, in a 3,500-seat outdoor space, that sold out in 12 hours, mm -hmm. and it was all to members. In fact, we made $50,000 on new members on that show so they could buy tickets. And that happened with Santana, too. Um, you know, it happens with artists of that size that fit into a little space like this. It's such a rare thing. And they usually play 5,000 seaters or something, and this has got 900 seats. So, you know, it's a big deal for people to see somebody. It's funny, because I saw Santana in my San Francisco days, you know, sitting on the floor at the Fillmore, which was not that much bigger a space than this one, for like three bucks. And there were two other acts on the stage with him. So, you know... Back in those days, it was not so unusual, but, but these days, those places, you know, they don't really exist. So. Right. Okay, so uh, you mentioned the Fillmore, so you're here now, no, you're the Bill Graham of uh, Poughkeepsie and Kingston oh, that's now. that's a huge compliment, because <laughs> Bill Graham was like, to me, a god he was when a I god. was a kid. It was like, because he came out, as I do before every show, which has kind of inspired me, he came out and talked to the audience, which, you know, in the rock world... Who does that? Right. You know, basically nobody does that. And he was uh, also, I mean, he wasn't selling like I do, you know, uh, support. He was basically schooling, you know, I want you to shut up and, you know, this is going to be, you know, he was obnoxious. But he also had a great charm and, um, and, a, and a control that he would be able to walk out on the stage and, you know, because some artists won't let me go on stage. You know, they have some attitude like I'm going to, I don't know, mess with their vibe or something. I mean, I've literally had artists say, if I, if they let me go on, you're not going to introduce a show like Kiss or Queen or anything, are you? I'm like, like Kiss or Queen would play here? Or, or what are you? <laughs> no, I'm not. You know, that they think I'm going to kill the vibe by going out, which is not my purpose, of course. But um, So the last time I was on stage at the Bar Divine, yes. <clears throat> 1978, and Talking Heads. Oh yeah, I oh, introduced. The talking it, introduced. Heads. All I said was, "Here are the Talking Heads." <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, I mean, you just had David Byrne up at. Uh, That's UPAC, another good story, actually. And that was he's a an artist great that, show. that he would not let me go on stage, but there was a reason. Um, that production. Did you guys go to that show? We did. Oh, that was an amazing show, and uh, as you saw, it was as he said, untethered, and he had three tractor trailers on that show, but you didn't see any of the stuff because it was all behind this chain, this light chain curtain thing he had up um, and you know we had 12 artists they were all barefoot we had a dance floor out there it was an incredible show and I was psyched to do my thing because you know I love to sell to a full house and two important things was the whole cell phone thing which I really drives me crazy and a lot of artists crazy though some artists embrace it but um, most are like tell them not to do it and selling my field trip fund you know doing the raising the money for the education programs and so, and they had approved it in the advance. They said, yeah, yeah, you can do, yeah, sure, no problem, no problem. And then when we got, when they got there, they, his, man, his tour manager was like, no, no, he, he doesn't really want, and I said, well, I can dig it. I get it, get it from the stage scene there, I, but he'll take care of it. I said, really? He goes, yeah, yeah, he'll do the cell phone, and what else? Uh, the field trip fund. He goes, yeah, he'll do them both. I went, okay. And then Steve Lamarck was like, yeah, well, I'll believe it when I see it. So sure enough, David comes out by himself, barefoot, Everybody goes crazy. And he does the cell phone speech, you know, and it was a really good one. He did a very good version of turn off your cell phones. 
And then he left the stage. So we were like, oh, man, he's not going to do the thing. And then, like, I don't know, five songs later, he stopped the show, went out, and did a pitch for yeah. us. And yeah. he kind of messed it up, so I had to yell from the back of the house, field trip fund. But he got it, and we made, I don't know, 1500 bucks that night on the field trip fund, which was great. And it's rare that artists do that. Yo-Yo Ma did that for us when, he, when we had him years ago. Um, you know, it's rare that artists actually pay attention to where they are. But often when they do... Like Patty Smith was when she, we had her here a couple times years ago, and she was blown away by the fact that Mark Twain had played here, and you know, et cetera. And she talked about it from her from her show. And some artists do that. Lily Tomlin did it. I remember Paula Poundstone, of course. Mm -hmm. She's you know, people that are really kind of really conscious of where they are tend to remark on the space, like Santana did. Sure. I mean, he loved the space. So it was you know. So a couple of minutes left. Yes. Um, we talked about, uh, you know, evening performances, but you guys also do a school program Big that time, I yeah. think is important for you to mention. Yeah. And uh, I will also give you uh, any other time to promote whatever other shows you want to promote. Well, we, we do. We've been doing school shows forever. Uh, you know, I've been here 24 years, and it started before I was here. But we bring about 20,000 uh, kids from all over the Hudson Valley to here and to UPAC every year. And in most cases, they're seeing, the you know, it's the first time they're seeing live professional theater dancer music so we really feel like we're sort of introducing them to something that hopefully will stick with them the rest of their lives but it's a bear you know it's a bear to uh, uh, to support because you know federal government is ridiculous now in terms of f funding for anything other than the defense department and um and the state is not much better. Political school, commentary. Yeah. <laughs> and schools are not in great shape, public schools. And um, uh, so it's a struggle. And, and But we pitch our audiences, and, and a lot, we have a lot of foundation and corporate support, and that's really what holds it together. We also put a lot of artists into the schools and do really cool uh, workshops with the kids, and they end up performing on the stage. So, yeah, we do a lot of outreach in the community. Great. That's and you thing. have a gala coming up? We have a gal of Tom Jones. It's not unusual. What's new, Pussycat, et cetera. Uh, yeah, May 1st, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, he's, you know, quite the amazing, another 60s guy. Um, we do tend to book a lot of 60s guys. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. They're still, out, they're still out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. They'll never stop. And, uh, uh, but we have a lot of great artists coming, and, you know, people should go to our website, bardavon.org, and check out everything. Okay. Chris? Great conversation. Thanks, I appreciate Mike. you coming out and talking with us today, and thanks for hosting us here at the Bardemont. Thanks again to Chris Silva and the Bardemont 1869 Opera House for hosting our Backstage with the Bardemont podcast. Backstage with the Bardemont is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Backstage with the Bardemont.